President Joe Biden wants 40% of new cars to be electric by 2030. They're a vision of the future that is now beginning to happen. A future of the automobile industry that is electric. Battery electric, plug-in hybrid electric, fuel cell electric. It's electric and, and uh, there's no turning back. As automakers race to meet demand, they're setting off a mining rush worldwide for rare earth and critical metals. Cobalt, lithium, manganese, and nickel. Here in the United States, they're hard to come by, but exist in sensitive habitats like the ocean floor and indigenous lands. Now, environmentalists and activists are questioning whether electric cars are the wisest way to tackle climate change. I'm Gustavo Arellano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Today's Monday, August 16th, 2021. Kabul falls to the Taliban as Afghanistan's president flees the country. Earthquakes in Haiti kill hundreds as a tropical storm heads towards the Caribbean nation. And a newspaper in Colorado apologizes for saying New Mexico chilies are better than Pueblo chilies. As the guy who wrote the book about the history of Mexican food in the United States, let me say both chilies are delicious. And both lose to Chiltepines from Sonora. The state of California has long prepared for this. Since the 1990s, it has promoted the production of cars that run on electric batteries. When California sneezes, of course, the rest of the world catches a cold. So production and sales of electric vehicles has risen dramatically in the past decade. Here's the CEO of Ford Motor Company, Jim Farley, earlier this month. We're number one in vans, that vehicle's getting electrified. Mustang is the number one sports car, that's electrified now. F-150 is number one pickup truck, that's electrified. When those volumes really come on next year, um, that's really going to help our, our performance quite a bit. But in the rush to embrace this technology, are we damaging the planet even more? In this episode, we take you to the lithium mines of the western U.S. and Nevada, to the geothermal vents of California's Salton Sea, and to the seafloor of the Pacific Ocean. Our guide, L.A. Times reporter Evan Halper, and this episode will be the first in an L.A. Times series called The United States of California, In it, he'll look at public policy that the Golden State has pioneered and how it has affected the rest of the country. Evan, welcome to The Times. It's great to be here, Gustavo. Your story does a great job of not just explaining the current controversy, but also how California has figured so prominently into the development of this electric car renaissance. So what's the background? So California has been pushing electric cars for a long time. I mean, it goes all the way back to 1990 when the state passed these mandates for zero emission vehicles. It was a pipe dream at the time. It seemed like cars that would run on batteries were far off, but the state kept pushing. And eventually these cars started rolling off the assembly lines. And when they did, you know, they were so undesirable that they were called compliance cars. I mean, they were were (laughs) created just to meet the mandates of California. But, you know, the state kept at it and the cars became more popular. And now as we're looking at emissions and the need to cut them and meeting the challenges of climate change, electric cars are going to play really big, and there's going to be a need for a lot of them, millions of them in the coming years. And this isn't some long ago history. I mean, I still remember when one of the reasons why people wanted to buy electric cars was because you'd get the sticker that would allow you to be able to get on the carpool lanes. Yeah, getting into the HOV lane was a a really big sell for the electric cars. And, you know, the people who are the early embracers, you know, who bought the Nissan Leafs, that was a big reason to buy them. It used to be, though, that if you had an electric car, you sort of needed to have another car. You know, there weren't many charging stations. It was kind of something that you'd have as a, as a second car. But soon, electric cars will be the main car that most of us are driving. The internal combustion engine will be 
pretty much outlawed in California by 2035. At least the sale of new vehicles will all have to be something other than internal combustion engine. Oh, God, the Nissan Leaf, that takes me back. The early Toyota Prius is all boxy and ugly. And look, in California, we love to be seeing what we're driving. But eventually, as technology caught up and also the cars started becoming, frankly, better looking like the Teslas. And as people started realizing climate change is definitely an issue, those vehicles started to become popular. Yeah, absolutely. And this year was a particularly big moment because we saw Ford came out with a, you know, electric pickup truck, a fully plug-in pickup truck. That was something that just seemed unimaginable a few years ago. These battery cars were always considered kind of wimpy. They didn't have the horsepower. Now we're talking about being able to use them as pickup trucks and SUVs. Oh, yeah. I drive a 79 Ford Ranger Super Cab. And anytime I'd see these little cars, I'm like, ah, I could run you over. But then seeing that big, huge Ford truck, you're like, okay, I guess this is actually a real thing. And the Biden administration has also largely backed this push for electric vehicles as well. Transportation cars, they just make up so much of greenhouse gas emissions that you've got to make a big dent in them. You've got to get rid of these cars that run on gas to be able to meet those targets. And so the Biden administration's fully embraced moving toward electric vehicles. And they're also embracing California's push because when California changes its rules, it changes the rules for the whole auto market. You know, there's a coalition of states that are committed to doing what California does on tailpipe emissions. But even before that coalition, so many cars are sold in California that it's like for automakers to try to make one set of vehicles for California and another set of vehicles for everyone else just isn't practical. So when California changes its rules, the whole auto industry has to go with it. After this break, we take you to lithium mines that will supply the materials needed to power all these electric cars and why some communities say it's an environmental disaster waiting to happen. So Evan, all this demand made car makers run into a supply problem. China dominates the market on the production of electric car batteries and also the raw material. You know, getting these electric batteries is not as easy as just going to AutoZone and buying something for like $75. So the United States is now trying to figure out how to mine these rare earths domestically. For your story, you went to Nevada to find out more about the consequences of mining. And out there in the part of Nevada you went to, there's rich stores of lithium. First, what part of Nevada are we talking about? So we were way up north of Reno. We were near the Oregon border, you know, and it's it's not an easy place to get to. You got to fly into Reno or drive to Reno, and then you go about three and a half hours to four hours to get to this place called Thacker Pass. Um, you know, it's on Bureau of Land Management property. It's a beautiful, largely untouched, very windswept landmass that's high up in the hills. And there's there's all kinds of sagebrush, there's eagles, there's hawks. But yeah, it's a remote part of the state. So you go up there. Who did you meet? We met folks who were protesting the creation of this lithium mine. This is the largest lithium reserve in the United States. Right now, there's only one lithium mine. It's elsewhere in Nevada, and it really only produces enough lithium to make a small fraction of the electric batteries that'll be needed. This lithium mine could produce enough nearly to cover the whole U.S. vehicle fleet. And so that's a really big deal. So there's an indigenous tribe that has a reservation nearby, and that land is sacred to them. You know, they say their ancestors are buried there. This was the site of a massacre, you know, we're talking in the in the 1800s during the gold and silver rush. They go there to hunt. They go there to collect plants for medicine. They go there for ceremonies. 
And so this tribe initially had reached an agreement with the mining company that they were going to sort of have an, what's called an engagement agreement and participate with them and see how, you know, maybe the mining company and the tribe could work together. This all happened during COVID, and a lot of members of the tribe said they did not realize what was going on and did not like the idea of this agreement. One, two, three, Duranda. Can you hear me? This is Duranda Hinky. She's a member of the Fort McDermott, Paiute, and Shoshone tribe. We do see a, a huge and growing number of people saying, hey, I don't want this here. I don't want to see my great-grandchildren, you know, not live in a place where we can go and get our wood sources for ceremonies or, you know, some of the medicines I was just actually talking about with my grandma over there in, in the mountains, you know. And so we see like a generational issue. What are we going to be showing like the next few generations below? And um, this mine got greenlighted by the Trump administration in its final days, and it was fast-tracked. And when the tribe looked closer at what this would actually mean for this property, while there are many people in the tribe who see potential to get jobs there, ultimately the tribe has decided that this is really a big problem. So I didn't get your name. My given name or my my go-by name. What you would prefer? Okay. Day Hinky. Okay, can you spell? They see major potential environmental problems with all the sulfuric acid that's involved in extracting the lithium. They're worried about the water table. The hazardous chemical plant is sitting in their backyard. I mean, maybe if people had their hazard chemical plant sitting in their backyard, then maybe they'd have a different, you know, a, a vision on it, you know. If it's polluting the groundwater, if, uh, if they're getting cancer, if their family's dying of cancer, uh, they, they might have, uh, dominant society might have a different stand on it. And so now the tribe has come out against the mine. And this is a real problem for this Canadian mining company that had pitched their project as something new, something green. When the tribe said, when we started looking into this, this really isn't that green at all. And this is going to have a major negative impact on the community. And you also talked to a rancher who initially said, oh, this is going to benefit me. But now looking more into it, he's like, maybe not so. Right. So we did talk to Edward Bartell, who owns a large ranch that'd be adjacent to the mine. And he told us, he said he heard about this and initially he thought, great, you know, this is green. We need the lithium. This is the kind of thing we need to be doing. And then he looked closer at the environmental impact documents and realized that, you know, in his mind, his ranching operation can't even survive if the mine is built as planned. As springs start to dry up, as the water table drops, it becomes uneconomical to haul water vast distances to provide uh, drinking water for our cattle. So we see a huge potential of this uh, absolutely destroying our livelihood. He's worried about the pollution that'll be created, and he has cattle that are grazing on this large expanse of land, and he's seeing this becoming a big industrial hub with all kinds of trucks coming through and this giant mine pit. So he is suing to stop the project. Mining always affects the land, but the mining for rare earth, it brings particular problems. Yeah, I mean, these mines, you know, depending who you talk to, the extraction industries say, this is not your grandfather's mine, the things have changed, we're doing this in a different way. But you bore down into these documents, you're still talking about having to bring in all these tons of sulfuric acid to extract the lithium. And, you know, in the case of lithium and cobalt, right now, all, a lot of that mining is happening in the Democratic Republic of Congo because the mining is so environmentally challenging. It's also a problem there in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where they've got tens of thousands of children working in the mines. So these are one of the things that everyone, the auto industry, the Biden administration, environmentalists are struggling with, 
people who are driving these electric cars, they feel like they're doing a good thing for the planet, but a lot of them may not realize, okay, sourcing these materials creates a lot of social problems in and of itself. So from the northern parts of Nevada, you also then talk to people who are trying to mine for these rare earth minerals and the deep sea floor. Yeah, and that's kind of a new thing. So we went out on the boat of this company called, it used to be called Deep Green, they're now called the Metals Company. And their plan is to go way out into what's called the Clarion-Clipperton zone of the Pacific, where the seafloor is like two and a half miles deep. And there are these nodules that form over literally millions of years. The nodules have, uh, I think, four or three or four of the elements that are crucial for electric vehicle batteries and are hard to come by for the U.S. right now. Nickel, manganese, copper. And what they want to do is scrape these nodules from the seafloor. And there's so many of them down there that they're saying we can just pick them up like golf balls is the way they put it and create enough of these materials that you'd be able to source batteries for the entire U.S. vehicle fleet. Oceanographers are deeply concerned about this. More than 500 scientists have signed a petition urging the International Seabed Authority, which is kind of an obscure organization that's headquartered in Jamaica, but they have ultimate authority over whether this mining can happen or not. So these scientists are asking the International Seabed Authority to please not allow this to push a moratorium. And they're trying to push companies to sign on to this effort and refuse to source any of the materials through this kind of mining. Who are some of the people that you talked to regarding the ocean floor debate? I talked to Jared Barron. He's the CEO of the Metals Company. He talked to us about why he thinks this is environmentally sensitive and why the company believes this is saving the planet. The great thing about nodules is that every single part of this nodule I hold in my hand is usable material. It's like having an EV battery in a rock. And if we compare that to the alternative on land where we're having to rip down our forests, our trees, our plants, our, uh, dig up our soils to get to metal-bearing ore, that has enormous unintended consequences. It releases carbon sinks. It changes the sequestration cycle. It destroys biodiversity. We also talked to an oceanographer who's involved in the campaign to create a moratorium for this kind of seabed mining. The oceanographer talked to us about the scientific concerns about what could happen, the unintended consequences about there being habitats down there that we may not even know about, and life forms that actually rely on these nodules that haven't even been discovered yet. Yeah, the company isn't just picking up the nodules, but would eventually scrape the seafloor. The deep sea is like the most unexamined part of the world to the point where you also gave a cameo to like this little octopus that lives on these nodules that became a viral sensation. It was just discovered a couple of years ago. The Internet gave it the nickname Casper. And now Casper might have to find another home. So Casper is this kind of milky white octopus And as you said, unknown to humanity until a few years ago when some scientists discovered it. And this octopus is now confusing several of our uh, shore-based scientists who have never seen anything like this. And it relies on, yeah, these nodules that um, these companies want to mine. And the question is, if you start collecting these nodules and using them for electric vehicle batteries, how does that affect Casper's habitat? And not just Casper, but lots of other organisms that we may not even know about yet. So digging through indigenous land in Nevada, uh, child labor in Africa, nice octopi down on the ocean floor. Are there more ways to mine for lithium in these rare earths that are more environmentally friendly? So in California, in the Salton Sea region, there's a big push to at least find a way to extract lithium that is potentially environmentally sensitive. 
there's a lot of geothermal activity in the Salton Sea area. There's geothermal plants. And some companies have been experimenting with the idea of taking the brine created in these geothermal plants and producing lithium out of them. This is something they've been trying to do for several years. There have been some attempts at it, and it wasn't economically feasible in the past. But of course, the market for lithium is like exploding right now. And so what may have not seemed economically feasible when electric vehicles were such a small portion of the number of cars being sold may now make a lot more sense and be able to be scaled up much easier and more quickly as the electric vehicle market is exploding. The Salton Sea area is, of course, a complicated place. There's been a lot of environmental injustice there. There's been runoff, agricultural runoff that's run into the sea, and then the water evaporates, and it's created all kinds of air problems. And so, you know, the community there, while they're excited about the potential for this development and jobs and being some kind of hub for electric vehicle batteries, they're also taking a very careful approach. So it seems we have a Sophie's Choice, a rock and a hard place, whatever cliche you want to use when you have two things in front of you and neither of them are good, but you have to go with one. Because on one hand, we do need vehicles that are not running on gas to help save off climate change. But on the other hand, you have these damaging consequences of mining. What are your sources stand on this issue? Well, I didn't talk to anyone who said we shouldn't have electric cars. I mean, generally, the thinking is these are helpful. This needs to be part of the solution for climate change. I mean, you did have some real more radical activists say we should drive less cars. We should, you know, there should be more public transit. We should be walking more. I mean, that's something we hear a lot. But the realities of how many cars Americans are going to drive are going to be with us. So you're also hearing more practically that, look, there's a lot of mining going on all around the world right now. These companies have a lot of power to change the way the mines that exist operate. So while there are these cobalt mines that are operating in the Democratic Republic of Congo right now, could these car manufacturers actually change the way that industry operates instead of have to you know, create new mines in different parts of the world and create more environmental damage? But the question is whether these companies that are saying we have to do all this extracting are being opportunistic and using climate change as a kind of a vehicle to boost their profits, or are they being realistic and we do need to do more of this mining in the U.S.? It's a big debate and it's robust and the Biden administration's involved in it and it's playing out in real time. Evan, thank you so much for this interview. It was fantastic to be here. Thank you. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow... Schools reopen in California and beyond. Should parents be worried in the wake of COVID-19? Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Melissa Kaplan, and Marina Peña. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editors are Shawnee Hilton, Rebecca Bryant, and Lauren Rabb. Our intern is Ashley Brown. And our theme music is by Andrew Epid. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news on Desmadre. Gracias.